Welcome to Halloween Night 1994, the podcast that remembers all things Halloween in the 90s, through pop culture, movies, history, and some childhood nostalgia. Because there was no better time than Halloween Night in 1994. On this episode, we're discussing 1995's Casper. How do movie episodes of Halloween Night 1994 work? Well, we do an overview of some movie history and trivia, talk about the cast and the team behind it all, and then count down some very 90s things from the movie. That's our Nothing But 90s segment. And if you stick around to the very end of the episode, you'll hear some fun 90s product placements that show up too. So get comfy, stay up past your bedtime, eat a little too much Halloween candy, and listen in for a spirited conversation about Casper. When black cats howl and monsters roar, it's Halloween night, 1994. Casper comes in at a close second for the movie I watched the most around Halloween growing up, the first being Hocus Pocus. And it's a good follow-up to Hocus Pocus, because the two movies have some similarities. The past interacting with the present, broadly speaking, teen angst, some pretty great houses, both take place on-slash-around Halloween, and both stories revolve around boys trapped for potential eternities in limbo-like states. Boys whose voices do not match their faces. I'll explain that one later. Casper is based on the cartoon character Casper the Friendly Ghost. The character has been around a while, featured in comics, animated cartoon TV shows, and even more recently, a 2019 Geico insurance commercial? Casper was created in the late 1930s by Seymour Wright and Joe Oriolo, an idea they had for a children's storybook. The rights to Casper were later sold to Paramount, who went on to produce Casper animated cartoons in the mid-1940s, and his popularity grew from there. Casper headlined a bunch of comic book series, which had casts of supporting characters too, like the ghostly trio, his three uncles who also appear in the film Casper. Now, according to canon, Casper was a ghost from a ghost family, never an actual human. But the film Casper has a darker origin story for him, which we'll talk about now in a plot summary. As always, this is your spoiler alert, folks. In 1995's Casper, a woman named Kerrigan Crittenden inherits Whipstaff Manor, a mansion in Maine. Much to her dismay, she discovers Whipstaff is haunted by Casper and his uncles, the ghostly trio, Fatso, Stretch, and Stinky. After a few failed attempts to evict the ghosts, she enlists 
the help of paranormal therapist Dr. James Harvey, a therapist who communicates with ghosts, or the living impaired, as he says in the film. More backstory here. Dr. Harvey and his daughter Kat have been moving around the country, working with various clients since Kat's mom slash Dr. Harvey's wife passed away, presumably doing all of this to try and connect with her ghostly spirit. All of this moving is a real bummer for Kat. She is a teenager after all. Ugh, parents. She's tired of moving around, unable to make any friends, and so Dr. Harvey promises if he isn't able to reach his dead wife this time, he will stop and they'll settle down somewhere. So we get some emotional stakes. Dr. Harvey and Kat arrive at Whipstaff and find our ghost friends who are really just kind of being unreasonable and won't leave the house. Casper is, as his comic book title suggests, the friendly one, and he tries to maintain some level of hospitality for Whipstaff's new guests. As Casper and Kat's friendship blossoms, she restores some of Casper's toys in the Whipstaff attic, which brings back some of his memories from his life. I guess Casper's been dead so long he can't remember anything about his old life. Wait, so this means he's just floating around aimlessly in that big house doing whatever his mean uncles ask of him? That kind of sounds like a metaphor for depression. But back to the memories. Casper recognizes a wooden sled and remembers that was how he died. He stayed out too long playing with it, caught pneumonia, and then died. This always used to freak me out. I didn't grow up around snow, so like, could that really happen, I used to wonder? On the flip side, there was that old Campbell's Soup commercial, where a snowman shows up at the dinner table after playing outside all day, he eats some soup, which warms him up, and then he melts, revealing he was a real boy after all. Now, Casper also remembers his father, a quirky inventor type, had created the Lazarus machine to bring Casper back to life after this tragic death. So Cat and Casper go looking for it in the depths of Whipstaff. Meanwhile, Kerrigan and her associate Dibs are snooping around throughout the whole movie, and they happen to catch wind of this. Everyone gets real excited about the Lazarus, and Kerrigan ends up dying and turning into a ghost. Oops. But that's not a problem, because she can use the Lazarus to come back to life. However, Kat and Casper trick her into moving on before she can do so. Where are Dr. Harvey and the ghostly trio in all of this? Well, they've been out drinking, and Dr. Harvey gets into a plot-wise convenient construction accident. He dies and also turns into a ghost. Oops again, I guess. Like a good ghost friend, Casper gives up his seat in the Lazarus for Dr. Harvey, who emerges alive and well. In the end, Mrs. Harvey, in angel form, shows up to let her husband know she's just chillin', waiting for him in the afterlife. She turns Casper into a real boy for like 10, 20 minutes tops, and Kat, of course, gets to be the cool kid at her school dance.
The movie Casper is notable for being the first movie to have a fully CGI main character. And on this rewatch, the CGI kind of stood up, maybe helped by the fact that Casper and the ghostly trio are translucent. Director Brad Silberling tweeted that there were more CG shots in one specific scene of Casper than in all of 1993's Jurassic Park. Which scene? Do you remember when the trio makes Casper serve them food, and all the food they eat just, like, falls onto the ground? And then they pretend to melt to mess with Dr. Harvey? Yep, that's the one. If this comparison between Casper and Jurassic Park seems unbelievable, just remember that dinosaurs had only about 15 minutes of screen time in total in Jurassic Park, and about 5 minutes of that was CGI. The rest? Practical effects, baby. Back to Casper, though. The film's CGI effects were said to require the equivalent of 19 million floppy disks to create. It was 1995, remember. And if you don't remember what a floppy disk is, you might be too young for this podcast. The film was produced by Steven Spielberg, and he actually had a different first choice for director, Steve Barron, the man behind the 1999 live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie and music videos like Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Barron turned Spielberg down, which he said he since regrets, and Brad Silberling was recruited for the position. Silberling directed other films you might recall, such as 1998's City of Angels, and 2004's Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, and the third episode of Felicity in Season 1. Team Noel, by the way. Speaking of Felicity, J.J. Abrams, who is one of the creators of Felicity, did an uncredited rewrite of Casper. This is noteworthy because it was the first time Abrams worked with Steven Spielberg, and perhaps the first time Abrams worked with the idea of people dying and being stuck in limbo. That was a bad jab at the TV series Lost. I could not help myself. I also want to mention that composer James Horner wrote the score for Casper. He didn't have much background knowledge of the Casper comics, so he said the score was based mostly on what he saw in the film. His interpretation was that there was a loss of youth in the film, making it a bit like a fairy tale. Horner also wrote the score to many other notable 90s films, including The Rocketeer, An American Tale, and Jumanji. Oh, and Titanic! That's my Leonardo DiCaprio connection. Apparently, he wasn't considered for the role of Casper. Though I read Leo invested in the mattress company Casper, who is not sponsoring this show, by the way. Uh, they could if they wanted to, though, just saying. Let's get into some real casting what-ifs, though, shall we? This one is a doozy. Dr. James Harvey was played in the film by Bill Pullman, who I used to get confused with, in name only, Bill Paxton. Tom Hanks, Jim Carrey, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, and Phil Hartman were all also considered for the role. 
I think Bill Pullman is great in this, though. His 13-year-old daughter, Kat Harvey, was played by Christina Ricci. Scarlett Johansson and Kirsten Dunst were also considered for the role, but again, I think Christina Ricci was kind of perfect casting. Casper was voiced by Malachi Pearson, who appeared on a few episodes of shows in the notable 90s TGIF lineup, like Full House, Family Matters, and Step by Step. Also, perfect voice casting there. Casper's physical form at the end of the movie? Well, that's Devin Sawa. As I mentioned earlier, big Hocus Pocus connection here, because in that movie, the cat Thackeray Binks was voiced by James Marsden, but his human form was played by a different actor. Hey, I mean, I get it. You gotta do what you gotta do. Devin Sawa and Christina Ricci also starred together in 1995's Now and Then. In an interview with Vulture, Sawa said that Ricci recommended him for Now and Then because of the bond they developed while filming Casper. Oh, I like that. The ghostly trio, Fatso, Stretch, and Stinky, were voiced by Brad Garrett, Joe Napote, and Joe Alasky, respectively. Kerrigan, played by Kathy Moriarty, was almost played by Glenn Close. Makes sense, big Cruella vibes. Uh, also, Kathleen Turner, Carrie Fisher, and Michelle Pfeiffer. While her associate Dibs was played by Eric Idle. Before he was cast, these notable folks were all considered. Hugh Laurie, Patrick McGowan, Stephen Fry, Leslie Nielsen, Gregory Peck, and Gene Wilder. One more casting note, not a what-if. The film starts with a lawyer reading Kerrigan's father's will, and that lawyer is Ben Stein, the economics teacher from the beginning of 1986 Ferris Bueller's Day Off. To this day, that movie remains the only movie I can quote completely from memory because of how often I watched it during the 90s, though Titanic is a close second. And that's my reference to a non-Halloween 90s topic, so let's jump into nothing but 90s. I probably need a theme song for this. Uh, what is nothing but 90s? It's a countdown of some super 90s things in each movie. Some may not be overtly 90s, but trust me, it all connects because I am a product of the 90s and I live for products of the 90s. Let's begin with number four on our list of very 90s things in Casper. Hard copy. The hard copy I'm talking about was an American tabloid TV show that ran for 10 years, from 1989 to 1999. It featured both celebrity news and stories about everyday people. Key word in that description, though, tabloid. Everything was sensationalized. The show appears in an early scene in the film and acts as a catalyst for getting Dr. Harvey and Kat to Whipstaff Manor. Casper is watching TV, Mr. Rogers to be exact, 
And as he flips through channels, he sees an episode of Hard Copy with a story on Dr. Harvey's paranormal practice. The story focuses a little too much on his, quote, loner daughter cat and how he's dragging her along for the ride. Casper crushes hard on Cat and then travels through the power lines to Kerrigan's main hotel room to show her the story on her TV, introduce her to Dr. Harvey's practice, and eventually get Cat to come to Whipstaff. Creepy? Mm, he is a ghost. I don't know what I expected, really. And I definitely watched hard copy earlier than I should have as a kid. I can't remember what time of day it was on, anyone know? But I, I also remember Inside Edition, which was similar to Hard Copy, both of them debuting in 1989, but that had less celebrity stories and was likely more legitimate. Were both of these precursors to Dateline NBC? Mm, I don't know, let's say maybe. Hard Copy, Inside Edition. They remind me of watching just blocks and blocks of TV after school. I guess I was preparing myself for the questions I would face later in my 30s and such, like Netflix asking me if I was still watching. Have streaming services created pre-programmed blocks of shows for people like me who get lazy and don't want to choose anymore yet? Sometimes you just want to turn on TV like it's 1995 and watch Jerry Springer, Maury, and then the Sally Jesse Raphael show all in a row. Number three on our nothing but 90s list for Casper, The School Dance. Part of the plot, and you know, adding some low stakes drama, is that Kat's new school in Friendship, Maine has this Halloween dance that is going to be cancelled. I think because the assembly hall is unusable or something? Anyway, Kat has just told her classmates that she lives at Whipstaff Manor, and one kid suggests that they have the dance there. Side note, I don't want to get too much into plot detail, but there's two other classmates of note in this movie, Vic and Amber. Vic is that boy who helps Kat with her locker on the first day of school, you know the type. Amber is his jealous girlfriend. I bring this up because after the idea to have the dance at Whipstaff gets suggested, Amber, again jealous, reminds everyone that they were going to have the dance at her parents' house. She then holds an informal poll, and she says something like, Everybody who wants to have the dance at my house, raise your hand. And my sister and I used to imitate this scene all the time because she makes this like weird flip with her hand. It's, I don't know, it's burned into my mind. Why is this school dance oh so 90s? First off, I haven't thought about school dances since probably the 90s. Well, okay, that's a lie. I was in high school in the early aughts. But anyway, Right before Casper gets his Cinderella-type deal from Angel Mrs. Harvey, a slow song starts playing and all the kids immediately pair off, except Cat. I had a visceral reaction to this because, yeah, what anxiety this used to cause. It was like not getting picked for a team during gym class, but worse. 
And then when human Casper and Kat start dancing, everybody like backs up away from them. That is sort of what you imagine will happen in school. Like, oh no, everyone is staring at me. In reality, though, no one is staring at you because they were all so busy worrying about whether or not everyone was staring at them. That took me a few decades to learn. Before we move on, I want to talk about Whipstaff Manor itself. Director Silberling reportedly wanted a style of haunted house that was different from the expected. Production designer Leslie Dilly suggested they create a house in gaudy-esque style, instead of the stereotypical Victorian-style haunted house. Gaudy architecture, named after Antony Gaudi, is characterized by curving organic forms and colorful details. We see this in the curved lines and windows throughout Whipstaff, including the ceiling of Kat's room, which is almost identical to Gaudi's ceiling in Casa Batlo, and the circular design of the floor of the main hall-slash-entrance into Whipstaff. Whipstaff Manor was largely built on sets, and if it looks vaguely familiar, that might be because the Backstreet Boys' Everybody music video was filmed on the same set later. Alright. Or should I say, alright? Number two on our list of 90s things in Casper. It's gotta be the wardrobe. To be honest, it's mostly Kat's clothes that feel aggressively 90s. She's got a thumb ring, which I definitely rocked in the 90s. Uh, there's a scene where Kat and Dr. Harvey arrive at Whipstaff and she goes to pick out her room. She carries a plastic trash bag full of her clothes around until she finds one. This could have easily been a duffel bag or a suitcase, but the trash bag is such a good character detail. Oh, and what's inside the bag? Lots of oversized sweaters, I'm sure. Remember earlier in this episode we talked about supporting Casper characters? Well, one of them was Wendy the Good Little Witch, who wore a red hooded outfit in the comics. The original plan was for Christina Ricci's character to be based on Wendy and share the name Wendy, but Universal didn't want to pay up. One of Kat's sweaters, a red one, is perhaps a nice homage to Wendy the Good Little Witch. Dr. Harvey's clothes aren't quite as overtly 90s, though his hair definitely is. Everything still feels appropriate to his character, though. He wears a white shirt with two pens in the pocket, and a green sweater, and he's, like, slightly disheveled. Eccentric therapist, for sure. And then his ghost self later has the sweater, too. There's obviously not much to say about the wardrobe for Casper and his uncles, but I can't forget the costumes of the kids at the dance. They look like classic store-bought costumes, it feels wholesome. Not to say that there weren't any scary costumes, but costumes at a party like this today would be celebrities or memes or overly elaborate puns. And these were textbook Halloween costumes in the best way. And finally, the number one most 90s thing about Casper, all the pop culture references. I couldn't finish this list without them. There are just so, so many. 
I won't be able to name all of them, but the few that I did want to talk about include a visit from Dan Aykroyd in full Ghostbusters gear while Kerrigan is trying to rid Whipstaff of its ghostly inhabitants. He even says, who you gonna call? Someone else. Also in this scene, she brings in a priest to perform, like, an exorcism on the house. Uh, he has black robes, a black floppy hat, a mustache, and a giant cross necklace, and also these tinted glasses plus um, a sort of Italian, Italian-American accent. Growing up, I had no idea who this guy was. I always felt, like, out of the loop here. Until I looked it up for this podcast. He is Father Guido Sarducci, a fictional character created by comedian Don Novello, and uh, he first appeared on Saturday Night Live in the late 70s. Other references I did get? Well, Oprah and Marky Mark are both mentioned. Uh, in one scene, Casper says, Come with me if you want to live, which is a Terminator reference, of course. Oh, and when Dr. Harvey first meets the ghostly trio, he faints because mm, ghosts, and then the trio proceed to possess his body. He wakes up, goes to the sink, and sees his face in the mirror transform into Clint Eastwood, Rodney Dangerfield, Mel Gibson, and the Crypt Keeper. Very 90s. Uh, somewhere there exists a Steven Spielberg face in there too, but it did not make the final cut of the film. In Roger Ebert's 1995 review of Casper, he wrote, quote, It's easy to see why Casper the Friendly Ghost has such an appeal for small children. They have so much in common with him, since they too feel invisible and misunderstood, and remember little of their earlier lives." End quote. And I like that this kids' movie tackles some big questions about life and death. Sure, there are some cheesy moments, but at the core of this movie is the idea of letting go, or moving on, as it might be with any good ghost story. The parallels between Dr. Harvey and Casper's dad both doing whatever they could to bring back their deceased loved ones was not lost on me when I was younger. In the end, though Casper the Friendly Ghost may not have resolved his unfinished business, both he and Kat find the one thing they had each been looking for, a friend. As always, thanks for listening. We've got a few product placements to discuss in a minute. First, however, if you've enjoyed this episode, we have another movie episode about Hocus Pocus that you should check out. And subscribe, follow, and rate this podcast wherever you listen. Write me a review, too. Tell me your favorite memories of watching Casper. Or share this podcast with a friend. You can follow Halloween Night 1994 on Instagram at Halloween Night 1994 and on Twitter at H Night 1994. And now, because you've stuck around this long, it's product placement time here on Halloween Night 1994. 
This list is by no means exhaustive. It never is. First up, Kerrigan's Range Rover. And you can't say, well, there are often cars in movies, so does this even count? Because there is at least one shot of the front grille of the Range Rover with the words Range Rover framed fairly clearly as if to say, this is definitely product and it's definitely placed. We also got a few Nike items, ivory soap, and uh, a Visa credit card with a comically large Visa logo on it. And finally, the Easy Bake Oven. While Kat and Casper are fiddling with the Lazarus machine, Kat laments, I couldn't even get my Easy Bake Oven to work. Um, the Easy Bake Oven, which I believe is still being produced today, is a small toy oven, smaller than, say, a microwave, that used to use incandescent light bulbs to bake things, mostly cakes. I don't think I had one growing up, but they are very, very 90s. And now I want to make a personal sized cake just for me, and I don't even like cake. Thank you.